You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. We began a new series last week uh, talking about the parables of Jesus. And uh, last week we talked about uh, the seed and the sower and the different soils and kind of some application to our life. And this morning, we're going to look at what might be my favorite parable in all of Scripture. Uh, it's, it's, it's a common one. It's well known. And it's found in Luke chapter 10. And it's the, the parable or the story of the, great, uh, the Good Samaritan. And most of you have probably heard about it uh, or heard it. Uh, it was told by Jesus in response to a question, and we'll see that here in a minute. Uh, some scholars believe that uh, maybe it wasn't necessarily a parable, being that Jesus uh, made this story up to illustrate this point. Uh, there are some scholars who say uh, this this was a real story, something that happened, and and it had kind of been spread around, and so Jesus was aware of this story, and so he told it uh, as a response to the questions that he had. Uh, other scholars say no, Jesus made up the story, told it, and then it got spread around afterwards. Um, who cares? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it it matters probably. But really what matters is what Jesus said and what it matters, the difference that it makes to us. And so we want to begin by looking in Luke chapter 10 in verse number 30 as Jesus tells this story. It says that Jesus replied with a story and this is what he said. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who, at who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. See, this was uh, told as an interaction between Jesus and the Bible calls him a lawyer. Well, he really would have been an expert in the Hebrew law. We pick up that story in Luke 10 and verse 25, where it says this, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man asks an amazing question. He, he goes to Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to provide for us eternal life, and said, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? He asked the right question, and he went to the right source for it. He didn't ask with the right motive, though. 
Because scripture says that he asked it, why? To test Jesus. He didn't ask it because he was concerned about his soul and his eternal destiny. He asked it because he thought, I'm going to try to trick this guy. He was going to test Jesus. After all, what was he? He was an expert. He, had, he knew the law. He knew the scriptures. So he thought, I'll try to trip this guy up. It didn't quite work out that way, but that's what he was thinking at the time. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So Jesus said, well, you're the expert in religious law. What does the law say? The man said, you must love the Lord your God with all of your uh, soul, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man goes and quotes out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he says, listen, what you've got to do is you've got you've to love God with everything you have. It's interesting, I had... Uh, one of our students who's studying at Bible college texted me a few months ago and they said, uh, what do you think about, about man? Uh, is man like a, a dichotomy or a trichotomy? Like, is he made up of two parts, like body and spirit? Or is he made up of like three parts, like body, soul, and mind? Or, you know, and I'm like, honestly, I haven't thought about that since I was studying those things, you know? And here it just says, you've got to love God with everything. Your heart, your strength, your mind, your feelings. Like you just, you need to love God with all you've got. And we understand that. When you're in love with someone, that affects your feelings. But it's not just feelings. It affects your actions. It affects your thoughts. It affects everything about you. Remember when you started dating that person who was the love of your life and you couldn't think about anything else? Some of you go way back. Remember that time? I'll tell you how crazy it was for me. Really, how crazy it was for my wife. Because she fell pretty hard. I think we could all understand that. But uh, <laughs> some of you are like, uh, no. We don't get it at all. Me neither, but don't tell her. I was working nights and... Um, my wife would call me and we would sit and talk till one or two in the morning. And if you know my wife, you realize the incredible sacrifice of staying up late and losing sleep just to talk to me. That we've kind of moved past that in our marriage. She's like, let's talk tomorrow. Good night. But she didn't even mind staying up late, and she's not a night person at all. But we understand what love does and what the, the expert in law, what he knew was that Scripture was clear. We're to love God with everything that we have. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you got it. Now, it's not that simple. We know from scripture that 
The law doesn't save us. Matter of fact, Romans chapter three and verse 20 says, no, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Because if we say, okay, I'm gonna love God with everything that I have, if we're real honest, it doesn't take long before we don't do that. Because our desires and what we want begin to supersede our service and our devotion to God. We fall short of that. And certainly if we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, I mean, I want to be nice to my neighbor, but come on. I'm really concerned about me most of the time. And what the law does is it shows us where we fail. And then in Luke chapter 10 and verse 29, after Jesus says, do this and you will live, the Bible says that the man wanted to justify his actions. He thought, well, that's great, but... And so he said, well, who's my neighbor? I mean, are we talking about next door neighbors or are we going to have to cross the street? Well, what about the neighbors behind us? And really, the guy up the street, is that my neighbor too? And so in response to that, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I want us to go through that story this morning and make application. It says in verse 30 that this man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. My wife and I had an opportunity to go to Israel this May, and, and we got to see that road. And, and I'd seen pictures of it before for studying this story. But uh, that road, and this is not a picture of that, but that road is, is steep. It's about 10 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, but it's 3,000 feet of elevation difference. And so you can imagine that road, it switchbacks and there's blind corners and there's places where the, the canyon kind of narrows. And there's a lot of places where someone could ambush somebody else. And historically, that was a dangerous road. There's records from uh, 170 AD and, and even later uh, about people getting attacked on that road, getting beaten up. Uh, matter of fact, there's references to the road being known as, as the red way or the bloody way, that it was just, it was a dangerous road. And it might've been that this guy, the Bible doesn't say, tell us if he was traveling with somebody else, but maybe he was traveling alone and maybe people knew like, you just don't, don't go on that road by yourself. And so maybe there was an idea amongst the audience that, you know, this guy should have known better. Well, a lot of times we find ourselves in difficult situations when we should have known better, right? Regardless, the man was beaten. He was stripped of his clothes and he was left for dead. The Bible says this about our condition in Ephesians chapter two. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, we are born spiritually dead. 
You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of a sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Now you might say, well, preacher, I grew up in a Christian home and I went to church from a young age and, and I believed on Jesus from a, from a young age and I, I never really did a lot of really bad things. That's my testimony, well, except for the really bad things part, but I grew up in a Christian home. I, I believed on Jesus as a young boy. But that doesn't mean I never had sin. Matter of fact, even as I walk with Christ, I know my sin nature is with me. And the Bible says that because of that, we're born dead in our sin and we are subject to the judgment of God. We're going to have to endure the judgment of God except for verse four. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. See, the reality is this. This man who was beaten and left for dead could do nothing to save himself. He was not going to to get better, to get where he needed to go, to get healed on his own. He needed somebody to come and help him. And that is our state. Spiritually, that is where we all find ourselves. We are in need of forgiveness and a savior and God seeing our desperation, seeing our need sent Jesus for us. This was the condition of the, the Jewish man who was beaten. It says, by chance, a priest, Luke 10, 31, came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant or a, or a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So we have these two guys. One sees him and just goes to the other side. The other one is a little more curious. He goes over and kind of looks at him. But he too goes away. Now, priests would often travel this road. They would come up to the temple to minister. We don't know whether this... Uh, we know that the, the Jewish man who was beaten was going down. He was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, the scripture says. We don't know if the, if the priest was going up or coming down. He might have been going up to minister in the temple, and if he were to deal with this man, he would become ceremonially unclean, and he could not go and minister in the temple. That's a possibility. He could have been coming down and already having ministered, decided whew, he was exhausted. We really don't know why these guys decided not to stop, but they didn't stop. We've all been there. Maybe you've got your own problems. Maybe you're in a hurry. Maybe you would stop, but if you don't make this appointment, 
Or maybe by the time you think about it, you're already past and it would be too much trouble. Whatever the reason, neither the priest nor the Levite, who was a, a, a servant in the temple, he would guard part of the temple. Both of these were guys who you would think would be, would be the ones to help. But they didn't. See, religion can't save us. Church can't save us. Now, I'm a big fan of you coming to church. Okay? I'm a big fan of church. I think it's great. But it can't save us. Looking to the pastor is not going to save you. Amen? Matter of fact, oftentimes it's religion and church and ministers that become obstacles to people coming to God. I understand that. Listen, as a pastor, I don't want to do anything to hurt the cause of Christ. I want to try to live a life that is, that is honorable and reflective of the God I serve. But I know this. If you look to me as an example, I, you look, you don't, you're not going to have to look really hard or really long to find that I have failure, faults and failures. I don't want to do that, but that's the reality. And the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. I'm reminded of the story in Acts chapter 4. You may remember the thing that happens, I believe, in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are heading up to the temple and they see there a man who's crippled. He's lame. He's begging. Peter looks at him and he says famously, I don't have any gold, I don't have any silver. It's probably exactly what the guy did not want to hear. But he said, what I do have, I'm going to give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise, stand up and walk. And that was better than the best day begging. The Bible says that the man went into the temple leaping and running and, and there was commotion everywhere. The Jewish religious leaders recognizing the, the, the problem here for them, they arrested these guys. And they told them, uh, they, they, they realized they couldn't beat them. And, and uh, so they said, okay, uh, just don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Then Peter, Acts 4, 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And then he says this, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Our only hope is Jesus. If we think, well, if I'm just good enough, if I can just, you know, if, if I can just do enough, if my good outweighs my bad, our only hope is Jesus. Jesus. 
God's standard is not 5149. God's standard is holiness. He is a holy, righteous, perfect God, and none of us come close. You say, well, I'm closer than somebody else, but you're not close enough. Our only hope is Jesus. And then we see this man, this Jew, Jewish man who was beaten. Along comes, as Luke 10.33 describes him, a despised Samaritan. Now that's an interesting way to put it, right? A despised Samaritan. Now when I say Samaritan, most of you don't you know, have a bad reaction. I don't really know any Samaritans, to be honest with you. I don't have anything against the, the Samaritans, but the Jews did. Here's Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, telling the story to a Jewish audience about a Jewish man who was beaten, and now he's saved by a Samaritan. And for us, that context doesn't mean a whole lot, but to the Jews, that was not the likely hero. Matter of fact, Jesus had an interaction with the people in John chapter 8, and he's telling them some really hard sayings. And finally, the crowd reacts in John chapter 8 and verse 48. The people retorted, you Samaritan devil, didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? Now, why would they call him a Samaritan devil? That was, that was simply used as a derogatory term. We have derogatory terms today. Some of them have racial, racial connotations. I'm not going to get into that today. I, I, I get myself in trouble enough. I certainly don't need to try to think up or use any examples of that, but we know what those are, right? For all kinds of races, uh, it seems like most every race has some kind of a negative nickname or connotation or name that can be used. And these Jewish people, in finally losing it with Jesus, said, you Samaritan devil. Well, what are they doing? They're, they're showing their prejudice, but they're also showing us how little they think of Samaritans. And so when Jesus makes this guy the hero, he's a despised Samaritan. The Samaritans claimed to worship Jehovah God, but they weren't pure Jews uh, in their lineage. They didn't worship at Jerusalem at the temple like uh, the, the Jews uh, did and like they were supposed to in the law. They had come up with their own thing. They had, they had gotten a mountain and decided that's where they were going to worship. And so the Jews looked on them and said, ethnically, racially, they're not pure. In their practice, they're not pure. In their beliefs, they're not pure. They didn't care for the Samaritans at all. But this was the man. He felt compassion for him. And I was just meditating on these verses this week. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. Think about that right there. He stopped. The man had a donkey. 
I would assume that he was riding the donkey. We don't know that for sure. Maybe he was leading the donkey. The donkey was carrying something else. But it seems like if the donkey was capable of carrying the beaten man, then the Samaritan probably would have been riding him. So he stops. He takes his time. Then he puts the beaten man, he has compassion on him and he cares for him. He puts the beaten man on the donkey, so now the Samaritan's got to walk. He's in a dangerous place. He puts himself in danger. He has to exert more effort. And he goes to an inn. One of the things, I've read this story, I don't know, maybe a hundred times. One of the things that struck me this time when I read it and study it was it says when he went to the inn, he cared for him. You ever travel all day, you get to a hotel, maybe you're on a road trip. All you want to do is just chill, right? Maybe you just want to sit in your room and watch TV, crank up the air conditioning. Maybe you want to go to the pool. Maybe you just, you know, maybe you're just tired. You just want to go to bed. This guy went to the inn and what? Cared for the man. He didn't drop him off at, at the hospital. He took him. He cared for him. He continued to, to, to invest time and effort in this man. And then as he went on his journey, he paid for the man to recover and offered to cover even any cost beyond what he had already paid for. This man moved with compassion, went out of his way for the Samaritan. Think about what the scripture says about Jesus. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 24 says, he, talking about Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you were healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered about, but now you, you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Jesus personally carried your sin. By his suffering, we are healed. His stripes, the beating that he inflict, was, in, was inflicted upon him, the, the, the blood that he shed, the suffering that he endured, all of this was for us. This is what Jesus did for us. And Romans says that whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. I can go through this story without mentioning the fact that maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior. There's never been a place and a time where you've asked God to forgive you of the wrong things that you've done and, and you've put your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if we will only believe, if we will call upon the name of Jesus, he will save us. He'll forgive us for the wrong that we've done. He'll, he'll be our, our companion, 
our guide in life, and he will secure for us eternal life in heaven. This is what God offers to us if we will put our faith and our trust in him. And if you're here today, there is no greater step of faith. You might say, well, preacher, you don't know all the things that I've done in my past. Listen, God personally bore your sin. He forgives you. You say, well, preacher, I, I, I'm trying to do good, but I, I just don't think I'm good enough. Listen, it's because you're not good enough that God sent Jesus Christ for you. He knew you couldn't be good enough. This is the good news of Jesus, that he came knowing we couldn't be good enough. He died for us. And then Jesus makes application today. Now, which of these three, Luke 10, 36, was neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? This is the power of this story. Because the Jews would have never thought of the Samaritans as neighbors. They, the other Jews would have been their neighbors. Even today in Jerusalem, you, you see, or in Israel, you see different villages, different uh, uh, neighborhoods, oftentimes just out in different places. And we would look and we could often determine whether they were Jewish settlements or whether they were uh, Arab settlements. Because an Arab settlement would have uh, the, the mosque and the, the different buildings there that would be associated with that. And they, you would just know then there wouldn't be any Jews living there. And a, a Jewish settlement would have other uh, distinguishing characteristics about the buildings and the way it was, and you would know that there wouldn't be Arabs living there. Even as they live in close proximity, they still had division. And certainly the Jews were that way in the time of Christ. That's why it was so interesting with the Samaritan woman that Jesus went through Samaria because good Jews, they would go around. Why? Because they weren't our neighbors. They would avoid their villages. They would take longer routes and they traveled by foot most of the time, but they would still walk farther to not have to go through Samaritan territory. A Jew would have never considered a Samaritan a neighbor, but Jesus tells this story and then says, who's the neighbor? What's the law you're going to say? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, he doesn't say the Samaritan. He says, you know, that, that guy that showed mercy. Was it the Levite or the priest? No. It was the Samaritan. And Jesus said, do that. Just follow that example. Go and do the same. Remember what the lawyer was going to do? He was going to test Jesus. He thought, I'll use my expertise to trick Jesus. But the lawyer implicates himself, doesn't he? He wants to justify himself, so he says, who's my neighbor? But Jesus tells this story, and Jesus says to him, who is the neighbor? It's the Samaritan. Jesus said, go and do it. 
This is the ultimate kind of pay it forward, right? Now, we're going to close this morning talking about good works, the things that we ought to be doing. But again, I want us to understand that we don't do these things so that we get God's favor. It's because we have been given God's favor that we do these things. We don't do these things so that God will love us and forgive us. It's because God loves us and forgives us that we do these things. Jesus put it this way. In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Said, listen, we should do good works and people should see them, not to bring glory to ourselves, but to God. This is what we were created for. This is God's plan for our life, is that the way we would live would bring glory to God and goodness to others. Ephesians chapter 2, verse, beginning in verse 8, says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So if you read right to there, you think, okay, well then I guess I don't have to do anything good. But verse 10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. In other words, God has a plan for you. Sometimes I talk to folks and, and I am a pastor. I get the privilege. Uh, I come every day to work here at the church. I got a big office. It's really nice. I get to study and, and read scripture and, and I get to interact with folks. And I talk to some of you and you say, preacher, man, I go to an office or I go to a work environment and it, it's difficult. I'm the only believer there. Man, everybody talks a certain way or acts a certain way or does certain things. And, and it's just, it can be difficult. And I don't want to make light of that, but you realize that that may be God's very plan for you. That you are the light in, in that office, in that workplace. You might feel that way about your, your own family. Maybe you look around at, at your neighborhood. Man, I, I, I pray for, for my neighbors that God gives me an opportunity to share Jesus with them. And a couple of them are believers and some of them claim to be believers. I'm not sure. But I want to see, I want to see God save them. And, and God's put me on that street in that neighborhood. And so wherever we find ourselves is part of God's plan for us to show Jesus, to be Jesus right here at Belmar Church, right here on Kipling Street. I believe God has planted us right here to be a testimony to this community, to the neighborhoods around here. I thank God that sometimes people will talk about our church and say, oh, aren't you the church that does the food bank? Oh, aren't you the church that does trunk or treat? Oh, aren't you the church that 
And, and oftentimes it's good things. Now, there's been some times people have said some other things. That's true too. We don't want to do that, but that's part of our history. But I believe God has put us right here to be a light, to do his work. I want to close this morning with Titus chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed, those who have received this salvation are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. The application of the Good Samaritan is pretty obvious. Jesus makes it right there to the lawyer. He said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story. And, and the, the truth is, every, anyone we come in contact with that we can help is our neighbor. And we should show the love of God to them. We need to be totally committed to good deeds, Titus says. Not to earn God's favor, but because he has given it freely to us. And so my challenge to you is this. First of all, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Has there been a time and a place in your life where you've asked God to forgive you? Where you've turned to Him? Repented of your sin and put your faith and your trust in Him? If not, today could be that day. And if you do know Christ as your Savior then are you totally committed to good deeds? Do we wake up thinking, God, how can I show the love of Christ to others today? I got to admit to you that oftentimes I get busy. I get distracted. But I believe that that is a prayer that needs to be on our lips all of the time as we walk in and out of buildings, as we, as we travel, as we interact with people, God, how can I show the love of Christ to this person right now? Maybe it's just a smile, but maybe it's sharing the good news. Maybe it's praying for them. Maybe it's putting your arm around them and letting them know that you care for them. Whatever it is, we need to be men and women who are totally committed to good deeds. Not to earn God's favor, but because he has given it to us. Let's pray this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, through your son, we have life and eternal life. We have grace and forgiveness. And Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that has not experienced that, I pray that even as I am praying, that they in their heart would just cry out to you, God, save me a sinner. 
And Lord, it's so easy for us to get discouraged, to get distracted, to get scheduled and busy that we are committed to so many things, but, but your word says we are to be totally committed to good deeds that we might glorify you. God, let that be our prayer. Let that be our practice this week and in the days to come. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.